Hello, everyone, and a happy new year 2022. We welcome you all to the Happiness Journey with Dr. Dan podcast, where every journey is worth living. My name is Dr. Dan, and I'm your host for today's episode. I'm a cognitive behavior psychotherapist specializing in anger management issues, both court appointed and private, marriage counseling, dissociative disorders, narcissistic personality disorders, depression, anxiety, dream analysis, and also provide life, business, and retirement coaching support. I provide individual one-on-one session and also group setting. If you need any assistance, reach out to DMV Therapy and Coaching Services at 301-325-1550. And our website is lifecoachdanamzalag.com. Today, I'm very excited to have for our last episode of season four, a very special guest, Neil McKinley. And just like every of my past episodes, I will leave it up to the guests to properly introduce themselves as no one can do a better job. Neil, the floor is yours. Great. Thanks, Dan. And uh, thanks for uh, letting me be here. It's a real pleasure to be able to talk with you and your listeners. So as you said, my name is Neil McKinley. I live in Victoria, British Columbia on the west coast of Canada with my wife and my daughter. And uh, I am an embodied meditation teacher. And, you know, uh, my history with this practice, I have been meditating most of my adult life. When I was a teenager, I was a competitive swimmer. And uh, one weekend when we were away at a swim meet, um, the assistant coach of the team I belonged to taught us how to meditate. He got us to sit on our rolled up uh, sleeping bags, close our eyes, say a mantra and meditate. And I found it interesting from the go. There was something about it that, that hooked me. And so I followed that, that uh, interest for a number of years. I didn't really know what I was doing in terms of the practice. So it was a very kind of loose form of meditating. And then about 30 years ago, I started to give this engagement um, a little bit more form, a little bit more structure. I studied and practiced in two successive communities that are both rooted in Tibetan Buddhism. I studied and practiced with some intensity, engaging formal curriculum, doing long retreats. And then after my own career as a swim coach ended, I started teaching. Um, A couple of years ago, my relationship with the second of those communities that I mentioned ended. And I knew I wanted to continue teaching meditation. I knew I wanted to continue teaching the embodied form of meditation that had been my focus for the previous 20 years. I knew I wanted to take this work deeper in some way, but I didn't know exactly what that was. And I spent some time looking back on my teaching experience over the last decade, the previous decade and a half. And it seemed to me that the people who went deepest with this work, the people who seemed most affected, whose lives were most affected, excuse me, by the practice of meditation, were not necessarily those who practiced the most or studied the most advanced texts. It was people who studied and practiced regularly and found ways to mix the teachings and practices of meditation with the stuff of their everyday lives. And this has become the focus of my work. You know, how do we practice and study in the midst of our busy, full, responsibility-laden everyday lives? How do we mix meditative experience with the -the out-in-the-world experience of work and relationships and so on and so forth? How do we bring meditation and life, these two things that are often thought to be so separate from one another, how do we bring these two together and allow the benefits of meditation, 
which include, you know, a kind of a deeper relationship with these basic human qualities, such as steadiness and ease and clarity and sensitivity. How do we bring these qualities into a world that, to my eye anyway, really needs, seems to need it, need them right now? And that's my work. That, that is uh, something that here's my question. And I'm sure that thousands and thousands of people all through your career have probably have asked you prior to understanding exactly what are your teachings. Now, I'm sure that a lot of people have a very big difficulty in just sitting down, closing their eyes and thinking about nothing because nothing is really something. But, <laughs> is, but what? how can they separate themselves from life's obligation, as you mentioned just earlier, and yet think about nothing. I mean, it's hard for the brain to fathom yeah. what nothing means. So yeah. in, in the midst of meditation, how can someone accomplish this difficult task? Well, I mean, Dan, that's a brilliant question. And maybe it's one of a half dozen $64,000 questions that exist in meditation. And people ask me this all the time. You know, I do a fair number of, well, pre-COVID, I did a fair number of introductory classes and workshops here in Victoria. And uh, it would often come up, you know, people would ask me exactly that. How, I know meditation involves having an empty mind, having a blank mind, thinking about nothing, but I can't do that. Now, the first thing that I found interesting about that is that people would bring this notion up, even though I never, ever, as an instructor, mentioned that. Hmm. I never say meditation involves having an empty mind. Meditation involves having a blank mind. Meditation thinks about, is about, involves thinking about nothing because it's not true. Okay. So that's great. We're suddenly off the hook. Yes. So meditation <laughs> doesn't involve a blank mind. It doesn't involve thinking about nothing, which raises the question, so what does it involve? And how are we to relate with those thoughts that are like flying around? Mm -hmm. So when we're meditating, what we're doing is um, we're recognizing, one way of understanding it is we're recognizing that we do get caught up in all our thoughts about everything. You know, I have groceries to do. I've got dinner to prep. There are dishes to wash. I have a meeting tomorrow. I've got this interview with Dan. Ah! So meditation doesn't take away the dishes. It doesn't take away the groceries. It doesn't take away the podcast interview with Dan this morning. What it does is it recognizes that we, our thinking mind can kind of grasp onto these things really tight and cause a lot of tension and anxiety and stress in our lives. This is what Buddhism is pointing to when, they, when it talks about suffering. So we get really conceptually caught up in the fact that we need to do groceries later today. And what meditation does is it doesn't change the fact that we need to get groceries. That remains a fact of life, but it helps us loosen the grip of those thoughts. It says, okay, you're caught up in thinking about groceries. You're going to have to do groceries at some point. That's fine. But let's relax that thinking mind a little bit, that gripped mind a little bit by bringing our attention back to something else. And in the work that I do, that's something else because it's embodied meditation is some aspect of our embodied experience. So someone, a good friend of mine once described it as a shifting of allegiance. We shift our allegiance from the thinking about doing groceries 
to the immediacy of our embodied experience. Okay, I'm a little bit tense. I'm a little bit anxious. I'm a little bit nervous about how I'm going to fit this all into my day. It feels like tingling. It feels like prickly. It feels warm. And then back I go to that thought about the grocery store. Okay, no problem. Just relax and come back. And what happens is we do this more and more is we begin to settle. Our allegiance begins to shift. We begin to settle more and more in embodied experience as opposed to that caught up conceptualization. And when that happens, there are moments, it does happen on occasion. There are moments where our minds are empty, that our minds are blank when there are no thoughts, but that's not a necessary precondition of meditation. And, and it's actually, in my experience, a very rare experience. Most of the time I'm undulating between I'm mm -hmm. caught up in this thought and here I am back in embodied experience, caught up, here I am, caught up, here I am. So would you say, Neil, that meditation is a constant battle between consciousness and subconsciousness? I think that's a good way of understanding it, yes, because a lot of times, you know, the, the um, uh, I'm going to leave it at that, yes, I think that's very true. So we, we all know that subconsciousness is definitely much more powerful than consciousness. Yeah. So um, meditation is kind of a form of, self-hypnosis because when you put yourself into a trance you allow to detach yourself from the the awakened moment of consciousness which always is berating you with thoughts and and challenges oh, i gotta do groceries i gotta do this i gotta do this but yet subconscious only comes in when you are actually asleep so how can you build that bridge between both Ah, by one of the, one of the ways that that happens in the practice is I talked about how we're shifting our allegiance from being conceptually gripped by whatever it is, the grocery store and being present in our immediate experience. So, um, conscious is to use the language you're using in conscious of this present moment. And one of the things that happens when we are conscious with this present moment it's a very open, a very spacious, a very allowing sort of consciousness and or consciousness. Yes. Um, and what that does is it creates conditions and it creates space for the unconscious material of our life to begin to arise and come into consciousness. I mean, that's really one of the things, one of the dynamics that drives us into this gripped um, conceptual place up comes something from the unconscious you know it's a little bit uncomfortable i don't want to deal with it so i go into the comfort of these gripping thoughts so how do we bring bridge the two how do the two both have room in our lives come back to immediate experience consciousness and in the resting in embodied experience in this open relaxed way it creates a condition for it allows space for unconscious material to begin to arise and become part of our conscious life wow that is really interesting there neil now would you would you say with confidence that after years and years of meditation when there's less battle between consciousness and subconsciousness or unconsciousness do you think that someone have mastered meditation so let's say if you take the example of the grocery, if let's say you say you go back and forth, so you think the grocery, you put a grip on it, 
And then you let yourself relax, you let yourself get into like a, a more uh, serene environment, but then you go back into thinking about groceries or whatever it is. So this back and forth, if it's kind of cut off in half, does it mean that the person is actually on its way to fully understand the benefits of meditation? I think um, one of the best teachings I've ever heard or ever received about meditation is, is one of the simplest. And, and this is often the case for me. I remember years ago, I was um, told that the Tibetan word for meditation, which is gom, G-O-M, <clears throat> translates as beca to become familiar with. Okay. So meditation is becoming familiar with, and what are we becoming familiar with? Our everyday, ordinary human experience. And I think, yes, with a lot of practice, or even with a little practice, with a lot of practice, we do become more familiar with how it is for us as human beings. And so we do recognize, I've noticed this in myself and the people I work with, we do recognize the dynamics that drive our lives a little bit more. So I'm a little bit more prone to catch myself in the grocery store, getting caught up in something. And I have a little bit of practice in relaxing that and coming back to the immediate, this immediate experience. I wouldn't claim the, um, that I or anyone I know is a master, although there are people who've done this work for a very long time who I really respect their agility with this work. But I would say that um, there are people I know who have a really refined familiarity with what it is to be a human being, what it is to be caught up, what it is to come back, what it is to be conscious, unconscious, and to bridge these two. Now, um, can, you, can you say with certainty, or maybe not, I'm not sure, um, <laughs> that meditation just doesn't heal the human mind, but it could also heal the physical aspect of it. So can people really, by meditating deeply and being in that trance that we're talking about, can they heal any illnesses, physical illnesses? I think, um, you know, through the practice of meditation, we allow um, room for the basic um, healing functions of the human organism to come forward, you know, be them uh, psychological or be they physical. And again, I like to simplify things. And just looking at the dynamic we were talking about a few minutes ago, when we're caught up in our thoughts about something, the grocery store, when we're gripped in in that way, there's a tremendous amount of stress placed on the human organism, physiological stress. When we come back to the immediacy of this present moment, again, in the work I do, it's the embodied experience. When we come back to embodied experience, uh, that stress begins to unwind a little bit. It begins to release a little bit. We become, we come into contact with a basic sense of ease and relaxation that's in our system. In spite of the fact that we still have groceries to do and interviews to take care of and so on and so forth. <clears throat> and this emergence or sense of connection with these qualities, I think really allows the human organism kind of an optimal opportunity to do what it can to heal itself. So what are the typical clients that comes to you that says, I wanna learn meditation? What, what kind of problem are they dealing with when it comes to the desire to be able to reach out to you and understand a little bit better the benefits of meditation? Are they people that have gone through a tremendous amount of stress or post-traumatic disorders that they wanna be able to kind of 
manage a little bit better? What are the typical clients? I think the first, it's usually people who have recognized that there is a dissatisfying amount of endemic stress okay. in their lives. And that's often the, the term that people would use, stress. You know, the specific um, way that manifests, of course, is going to vary from person to person. But I think that recognition is fairly common. There's a recognition of um, a high level of ongoing stress and a, a, a inkling, a suspicion that there is somewhere out there a way to do things differently where the stress isn't quite so high and quite so um, affecting in our lives. So, um, so the, the typical individual that needs to be able to want or that's looking to be able to see a change in their lives, how long does it usually take them if they do it on a day-to-day -day basis for them to be able to start seeing benefits? That's a really interesting question. And, um, you know, I don't want to peddle in miracles at all here, but um, often people will report an effect in their first meditation practice, you know, just because um, prior to engaging the meditation, let's assume someone has never meditated before, prior to engaging the practice, you know, maybe they, we don't have a whole lot of tools for dealing with that dynamic of caught upness. Sure. I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, one of the tools I had for dealing with the fact that, you know, I have groceries to do and I just can't stop thinking about it prior to engaging meditation in kind of a deep way, my main tool and still is to a certain extent, to be honest, my main tool in dealing with that was thinking about it, right? I'd think about my thinking, like, okay, I'm really thinking too much about this grocery store. I'm going to put it aside. I really want to, you know, get away from that. It's driving me crazy. So I'm going to stop thinking now. Okay. Stop thinking, Neil, stop thinking. Don't think, you know, so I try to think my way out of, you know, not being caught up and, you know, people will come in having tried this in their own lives and uh, suddenly in their very first class, they're given a tool. Okay. We're all got our attention on, you know, what we're thinking, planning, hoping, fearing in our lives. Just for five minutes, let's shift that attention here to, let's say, the breath coming into the lower belly. And a lot of times, you know, people haven't had that tool prior to coming to a class and getting that tool. It's like, wow, that's a difference. There's a difference right away. So would you, would you say, and I know I'm going to put you into uh, like a little bit of a challenge here. So those who actually are perfectionists versus those who are procrastinators, would you say that the perfectionist people are more prone to stress more often because they want everything to be perfect? So they are more needing meditation versus procrastinator where they always think, I'll do it tomorrow. Don't worry about it. So they don't really think too much, as you mentioned, about the task at hand. So hmm. how would you differentiate both? Well, I think, you know, um, what kind of stress and strain do each category of individual experience? I think the perfectionist, <clears throat> in my own experience, as you note, um, the perfectionist experiences strain through the expectation that everything's going to be perfect, mm -hmm. right? Everything's going to be a certain way. This is going to be this way. This is going to be that way. And it has to be this way. And when it isn't this way, I'm really, the, my stress level goes way up. 
I think people who procrastinate also experience a tremendous level of stress and strain, at least in my experience, it might be different, but a lot of the people I know who procrastinate stress and strain because they have an expectation that things should be not perfect or not exactly the way it should be, but somehow different. Like, oh, I can't believe I didn't get to that today. I, I can't believe it. That's like so frustrating. I'm going to get to it tomorrow. Oh, I didn't get to it. You know, so both categories of people have, um, I guess, mental dynamics that cause a lot of stress for them, a lot of strain for them, a lot of anxiety in their lives. So how does your uh, program or say your retreat works, uh, Neil? I mean, is it like a two-day retreat, three-day retreat? Is it like a, uh, like a one-month program? How do you offer this? Well, um, like many people, um, with the advent of COVID, uh, yeah. my work has changed significantly. And uh, everything, almost everything is now online. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there's maybe three ways to talk about, you know, what gets offered on the most general sense. There's simply a a number of resources out there. You know, I have guided meditations, I have writings, I have a podcast, et cetera, et cetera, that people can access and take advantage of and just resource themselves. And then I have a free to join community called the Living Meditation Network that uh, provides a little bit more of container for people to access resources and interact with one another. And then there's another, a paid community, a a monthly or annually subscription um, community called the Online Gatherings, where we actually meet three times a week. There's an option of meeting three times a week. We meditate together so that that becomes a regular part of our life. We explore the teachings of meditation so we have a better sense of what the tradition says about all this work. And we're always asking ourselves, how does this apply to our everyday life? So there's kind of three levels of resourcing that I offer people these days. Beautiful, beautiful. Now, for all the listeners, what would you recommend is the best time to meditate? Is it the morning? Is it afternoon? Is it night before you go to sleep? Is mm. there a specific way or time of the day that the brain will be more prone to benefit from the meditation? Um, I mean, that's a really great question, and I'm going to answer it in two ways. The best time to meditate. <clears throat> On the one hand, mornings are great because there's a sense of freshness, um, and, and because it sets you up for your day, having had that quiet time, that settled time at the beginning. Um, And also from a pragmatic point of view, you then know that your commitment to meditate has been taken care of. You know, it's checked (laughs) off second on the list and there you go. So from one perspective, you could say morning's an ideal time. That said, one of the things I often say to people is that the easiest thing to do in the world is to not meditate. I don't know why that's the case, but it seems to be the case. The easiest thing to do is to not meditate. And so I really encourage people to look at the landscape of their own life and find what works for them. So the best time is the time that you're actually able to practice. And, you know, by way of an example, there's someone that I've worked with for a number of years and they meditate for five minutes a day, Monday through Friday from 12 to 12.05 you know, the lunch whistle goes, everybody leaves the office and they sit at their desk for five minutes meditating. 
And then they go get lunch and continue on with their day. And then the weekends are given over to family and household responsibilities. They don't have the time. They don't have the bandwidth. And I I remember when they, you know, informed me of this, I was just really impressed because it seemed very practical, very pragmatic, very doable, and very empowering. Looking at the landscape of our lives, when am I able to do that? That's the best time to practice. Beautiful. So is there any piece of advice that you would like to give to our listeners, especially those who have never really understood the benefits of meditation? How can they start? What should they start with? Well, I mean, one of the things that's great about um, the time we live in is there are, uh, you know, so many resources out there that people can take advantage of. And, uh, you know, just follow your, your gut instinct, so to speak, what feels like it has resonance and interest to you and give it a shot. You know, that said, the other thing that I'd offer is, you know, remember that it's really pretty simple. Meditation is actually very simple. And whatever we're thinking or doing right now, we could just for five seconds, take that attention and we can do it right now as we're ending the podcast, take your attention and just place it on, say the feeling of your skin. Just place your attention on the feeling of your skin for five seconds and just breathe, let a long, deep breath go. And there you go. You've meditated. Wow. So it doesn't need, you don't need to be able to feel like in a trance, kind of like sleepy, but yet awake by anything that can actually awaken you. So it's not like a, a specific phase, like a REM sleep that you get into. No, no. And that's uh, actually, that's a great point to come back to GOM, becoming familiar with what are we doing when we're meditating? We're becoming familiar with how it is for us. So if there's a should with meditation, what should I experience? What should I feel? It's whatever's going on for you right now. So if that's peace, that's what you feel. If it's anxiety, that's what you feel. If it's uh, uncertainty, certainty, you know, happiness, sadness, that's it. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, Neil, that is all the time that we have for today's uh, podcast. I really do appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy schedule to join us. And thank you again for participating, inspiring our many listeners with your incredible story and skill set. Now, we hope that you have all enjoyed today's episode. And I'm very excited about the many upcoming guests that we have scheduled for season five of the Happiness Journey podcast filled with inspirational stories, just like the one that you listened to today. Now, here are some concluding words of wisdom. Excellence is never an accident. It is the result of high intention, sincere effort, intelligent direction, skillful execution, and the vision to see obstacles as opportunities. No matter what happens, the key is to never give up. Excellence and seeking perfection are not the same, as excellence is what you can comfortably achieve based on your skill set and competence, and perfection is what others expect you to achieve. Excellence can be obtained. Perfection is never reachable. My name is Dr. Dan Emzeleg, and you may all keep pursuing your amazing journey in life.